0: All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week Live for July 17, 2020. This is Bob Ambrogi of uh, Law Sites Blog, and we have uh, our ever-growing panel of uh, Legal Tech journalists here to talk about the week's top stories. Uh, quite a few things uh, we want to get to today, but uh, let's begin by introducing today's panelists. Um, To my left, as I look at my screen, is Nikki Black. Nikki, how are you today?
1: Good. Good to see you. all Uh, My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case, law practice management software, uh, cloud-based, so it's great for remote work if you are working remotely. Um, I am um, a legal technology journalist, like everyone else here. Um, In terms of that, I write for ABA Journal, Above the Law, um, Daily Record, the My Case blog, and other publications. And I'm looking forward to today.
0: And thank you to My Case for sponsoring today's episode. (laughs) Um, No. Uh, Victor, how how about you?
2: Thanks, Bob. Uh, My name is Victor Lee. I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. I handle the business of law section, which uh, encompasses uh, technology. And, uh, you know, my standard disclaimer is that the views are expressed are my own and not those of the ABA or the ABA Journal or Major
3: League Baseball. So. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that is. Uh, Joe? Yeah, Joe Patrice. I'm from above the law. I am, um, you know, I, what I do right now is make bar exam officials mad at me. That's apparently <laughs> all I do. That's, that's been the whole.
0: Well, you know, they've got to be mad at somebody because everybody else in the world is mad at them, so...
3: Yeah. No, I'm making a lot of friends among the applicants, but the yeah. officials aren't happy.
0: Yeah. Uh, Zach Warren. introduce you yourself.
3: Hey there,
4: everybody. My name is Zach Warren. I'm the editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. And uh start of the MLB season is actually a week from today. So it, there's baseball coming back. You got to remember what the MLB is. Yeah.
0: And uh, robotic cheerleaders as well. <laughs> Caroline Hill, it's been a long time since we've talked.
5: <laughs> we like to chat daily now, don't we, Bob? I know, it seems that way. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, yeah, Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider Publication, Global Legal Tech Publication. I write just for Legal IT Insider and uh, my views represent Legal IT Insider. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: And uh, Victoria Hudgens.
5: Hi,
6: my name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm a reporter at Legal Tech News, where I cover cybersecurity, technology, um, either regulations or how it's impacting the practice of law, or and also legal tech, that sector, and delivering legal services.
0: And last but not least, Molly McDonough.
7: Hi, Molly McDonough. I'm a legal affairs journalist and media strategist based in the Chicago area.
0: Yeah, in my, my my reference to Caroline, Caroline and I were on a panel yesterday, sort of like this panel. Only it was a group of international uh, publications and, and journalists who are covering uh, legal tech it was kind of interesting. A lot of people I'd never met before, or even frankly heard of some of their publications before. So it was it was uh, really interesting to me uh, and. Uh, some good topics covered and uh, always interesting to me how universal are the things that we're all talking about, uh, and, and concerned with here. Uh, just a reminder to anybody who's in our live zoom audience here that, uh, go ahead and shoot us any questions or comments, uh, you care to do so in the, uh, in the chat interface. Um, and, uh, uh, we hope to uh, have you participate as well as uh, to not just sit there and, and listen to us. We welcome, welcome your input. Um, where, where to start this week? It, Zach, I was thinking maybe uh, you guys did a, a really ambitious uh, set of articles uh, this week. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about that.
4: Yeah, it was a lot. Um, so what we published earlier, that, well, throughout this entire week, but it started on Monday, is a series looking at algorithms that state, local courts use to not only predict recidivism um, in the trial phase, but even pre-trial, uh, looking at bail decisions, looking at when people are incarcerated, uh, should they be released. And really what we found is it's kind of a patchwork. There's no standardization across the US whatsoever, not only by states, but even in a lot of cases by counties um so there's a lot of different articles that touched on a lot of different things uh what these tools are uh two of the most prevalent ones you may have heard about a wisconsin supreme court case a few years ago compass is the name of the solution it's kind of an ai oriented black box um that has a proprietary algorithm spits out numbers based on a number of risk factors um Some of the other ones are, well, most of the other ones are a lot more transparent. Another big one is ORAS, which is actually developed by the University of Cincinnati. Um, The Ohio Risk Assessment Survey, I believe is what that stands for. A few states have adopted that. Um, and then there's a lot of variability in once they have the tools, how judges actually apply them as well. Some judges take everything at face value and say, this is what the tools spit out. So this is what we're going to rule. A lot of them aren't taking into account what the state and local courts have for the risk assessment surveys at all saying, we don't really trust this. We don't think it's worthwhile. So we're, it's here, but we're just going to kind of put it to the side. Um, so, and then a lot of people think that they're, well, in a lot of cases, there have been lawsuits about inherent bias in these algorithms as well, and how exactly they're making these decisions, what factors come into play, the role that both race and gender play in these. Um, so there's a lot of questions and we tried to answer as many as we could, but there's still a lot of answers left out there. Um, so I, I. Personally, think it was cool. We spent a year on it, and um, I definitely think it's worth taking a look if you haven't already.
1: Yeah,
0: I haven't had a chance to read it um, yet. Uh, read any of the articles yet? But I, how how transparent are are the courts about their use of these, and how how transparent are the developers of the algorithms about about those kinds of biases that that might be inherent in them?
4: I might kick this one to Victoria, actually, because I know she did a lot of the legwork calling states and seeing what they were uh, actually using for these tools, too.
6: Yeah. Last summer, um, my other editor at Legal Tech News, Reese, um, he assigned to all of us, um, we all were uh, assigned to reach out to various states about how they're using, if they are using any risk assessment tools in their criminal justice system, and then going into details about um, when did you start using it, what do you use it for, um, the data that you guys um, place into the tool, how do you check the accuracy. And a lot of states, it kind of varied on how transparent they wanted to be. And sometimes it just seemed like the person I was talking to just didn't know. They were the press person for um, that department or the correction department. They said, I really don't know. Sometimes it did seem a little bit like they wanted to be secretive when they didn't even want to say what name of the tool they were using, but they told you, oh, we use it or who developed it. So it was a A little bit of going back and forth, a lot of that. Um, But it was varying to kind of see some states were kind of like, we need to make our own because it's for people that are from our state. Other ones are just kind of like, if it's used um, by different states, that must mean that it's good. But it was um, a little concerning when you didn't hear a state saying that they checked the accuracy once they were using it, they Mm -hmm. just based it off of, oh, we saw the research and the um, uh, publications publication about like the quality of it and they said, okay, that must mean that it's great. It's kind of met <sighs> like a standard, but there is no standard and they don't right. really, some of them don't check to see like how accurate is it of um, the accuracy, um, the accuracy rate of um, recidivism and does it help with maybe sometimes they were looking at does it using these assessments to see like if it helps uh, people maybe provide better assistance in jail um, and, and sometimes they weren't checking for that. And that was kind of dis- um, dis- uh, concerning. But um, the transparency, it really varied. And it was kind of interesting a lot when you talked about the algorithm, they just said, I don't know about it. You have to go to the provider or someone that developed it. Yeah. It, it reminds me a lot
1: of um, over the years, uh, I, I was off counsel to a DWI defense firm and I was a public defender as well. And um, one of the issues with DWIs is trying to get access to the algorithms for the breathalyzers. And that's been this like constant battle for years between the criminal defense lawyers, you know, and the companies. And it's the same thing here, but in a lot of ways, there's there's a lot more serious issues like bias that you just don't have with with the DWI um, breathalyzers. It's just accuracy without that inherent bias. So that makes this even more concerning, I think. And quite frankly, in some ways I'm torn because Fails supposed to be discretionary, but then again, it's really just supposed to be based on what someone will return. And so these algorithms seem like they would make sense and would be a great idea, but that's truly what the basis is. And sometimes, but sometimes you want the judges to have the discretion and, and go with their gut feeling too, because that's what judges are there for. But then again, that doesn't always go go well. So yeah. So, so, I,
5: you go.
6: Oh, definitely. And reading um, Reese, um, he talked to some experts about the topic. And a lot of people said using these types of algorithms are useful because it at least provides some consistency. And you're not just using, you're not just going based on a judge saying like, oh, I think just based on my experience that this person should be granted bail or they should be held um, uh, prior to sentencing, well, prior to a trial. And it was interesting to kind of hear. I think the states that I spoke to, they always said like, we use this. We either require it or we suggest it. But at the end of the day, it's always the judge that makes the final decision. So I think that is something that I heard from states, and it's kind of interesting hearing speaking to experts about this topic. They mentioned Pennsylvania was one of the areas that had um, a lot of community community engagement and just kind of um, wanted to. Um, be a part of the risk assessment that was put, um, that was started in Pennsylvania. And I'm based in Philadelphia and speaking to both sides of that um, risk assessment tool that was implemented this year. I spoke to people that were pro it and part of the commission and people that were against it. And they both have their opinions on it and definitely like community engagement and that it's, of course, the people against the risk assessment tool said they didn't want to see it um, enacted, but they at least they said it had a little was a little bit better because it had some community engagement.
7: That that's what, I think that's what I would want to <laughs> see in in every rollout of something like yeah. this would be some kind of strong community engagement and definitely transparency in um, in what data is being used and how it's being um, how it's being used because that that's to me, that's where a lot of the bias, un, unintentional often <laughs> by <laughs> implicit and otherwise bias comes in by you know other. You know uh, um, assumptions that are made when developing the algorithms and then um, and then data that that um, is being collected in a in a way that creates bias um, in the output that's I think those are my biggest concerns. so the more you have kind of community engagement and the court not just saying, "Oh, we don't really we just adopted this and we require it, but we don't know how it works that that would scare me. I think that
5: is happening though, isn't it? This reminded me of um, an article that, in Wired um, saying courts are, I, I just looked it up because I, I remember um, reading about it, and courts are using AI to sentence criminals, that must stop now. And I haven't had a chance to read your piece, Victoria, it sounds fascinating and, and I will definitely. Um, so it was talking about the Wisconsin Loomis case, the drive-by shooting, I presume, did you reference? No doubt reference. So, um, and that was using Compass, the tool that you're talking about. Um and they actually—they gave him. Just reminding myself of that, so they gave him a long sentence because of the high risk score that was the defendant received from the black box risk assessment tool. And he challenged it, but to the Supreme Court ruled against him, saying that the knowledge of the algorithm's output was a sufficient level of transparency, which sets a really, really scary precedent. Just that trusting the output rather than, rather than really fully understanding the algorithm.
3: Yeah, trust I mean, the
1: machine. You
2: know. That right. Trust the machine. It must. It must be
5: right. But actually, they just don't seem to really fully understand.
6: I mean,
2: I just yeah, you know, sorry.
5: Oh no, you go ahead, Victor. I was just saying,
6: I saw
2: that. Article. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I guess one thing that I was kind of wondering, uh, just with with, uh, um, did you find that? Because I mean, just kind of looking at this and 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 what you're saying, and, and just doing a quick read of it, you know, I mean, just and and, and um, I, I used to work in criminal prosecution. Like what we used to do back in the days before. Um, you know, these, these uh, advanced algorithms was um, they would just interview someone right before they got arraigned. They would tally like, ask him questions like, you know, do you have a passport? What is your net worth? Where do you live? That kind of just stuff like that. Um, and they would do like a warrant check on the person and then they would come up with a score and then present that score to the court. And then typically it would, it would either be, you know, like looked at or it would be ignored. Uh, it would either be weighed, you know, heavily or weighed not at all. And, and, then, and then ultimately it was really up to the judge to decide you know, what the bail was. So it doesn't seem like this is, on the one hand, too much different than that, but obviously because of, you know, of of the implications of of the technology and whatnot, you know, there's, simply there's much more of a potential, you know, misuse of it, or even, um, um, you know, problems with like the underlying algorithms and whatnot. So did you get the sense that, um, you know, at least for the agencies or 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 the jurisdictions that are using this, um, or the, or the law enforcement officials that are using this. Did you get a sense that, like, they would be willing to either open it up for some kind of third party auditing or some kind of, um, some kind of, like, you know, involvement with, if not the community, some kind of third party and some independent third party to kind of make, make, the, make the algorithms more transparent and more, um, you know, easy to understand for the general public?
4: Yeah, I think that they would. One thing that we definitely found is Compass, the one in that Wisconsin decision, is definitely the most black box that are out there. Um, A lot of the ones that have been developed are a little bit easier to understand, a little bit more transparent, and in particular, a lot of times are developed with local law schools. Um, So the one that I mentioned, the Ohio one, that is all over the place, um, was developed by University of Cincinnati. There's another one that was developed, I believe by University of Virginia, the VPRIA or AI or something like that, um, that is used I think by five or six different states as well. And that also gets validated by the university every so often just to make sure that the risk factors um, are hand in hand with what people are actually seeing in the community. So I think, a good number of them do, um, but I what we found more than anything is unless you are in criminal law and especially in the general public, a lot of people just don't really have the awareness that this is something that judges have at their disposal and actually use. So a lot of people a don't know how to ask for it, and b, if they do, the courts will give that information, but it's not readily available. Um, so I think that's where the push for transparency would be more than anything else. It's less getting the courts to give the information if you know that it's there, and more educating people that it, this is something that judges will be taking into account.
0: It's one more one more piece of information that underscores the importance uh, of of law firms and legal practitioners having technologists as part of their teams and part of their staff. I mean, I, I'm I'm still reeling from the what two or three year old news now from the the study from Susan neville Omar where she looked at the different research platforms and and the different uh, outcomes of the algorithms there. Uh, why is my monitor freaking out here? Um, and you know, which, I mean, she found the you look at the leading legal research platforms, and I mean, everybody kind of thinks you know the top cases are the top cases. If you go to Lexis, if you go to West, the most important cases are going to be the same. And in fact, the, these different Uh, platforms based on their different algorithms return drastically different results. I mean, and that's nowhere near as serious as when somebody's liberty is at stake is, is what we're talking about now, but it just underscores the fact that you need to have people as part of your team who can help you interpret and understand, uh, this stuff. It was actually, I, I wrote about it this week at Above the Law because I was writing was the, the, the uh, AA, the American Association of Law Libraries had their convention this week. And I kind of wrote about the importance of law librarians in that role of understanding like legal research applications and, and algorithms and those kinds of things. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it really goes beyond that. It, it's an essential part of the team. Um, what Should we uh, move on to... Uh, not sure what I know. Molly, you had a couple of stories you were highlighting. Do you want to uh, the uh, well? You, you can pick one. <laughs> of, of sure. The you you're... know, I
7: get, I'll I'll start with uh, both are are pretty pretty timely and related to COVID. Um, so the pandemic. But um, the the one that kind of just shocked me this morning was the <laughs> the actually the use of illegal in a a Tribune story. Uh, the illegal uh, recording of a Court hearing, a bail hearing that was live streamed on uh, YouTube. <laughs> I'm still not comfortable with the word illegal recording of a live stream from a court hearing. Except right. that you can't, you can, you could have been there in person, but you really wouldn't have been able to record it. So, you know, but how does that apply outside um, this case um, involved um, the uh, uh, a site that I, ha- I wasn't familiar with, World Star Hip Hop. Um, had posted the video because it was going viral. Um, and it was a uh, bail hearing where um, uh, the defendant hadn't had a ch- chance to talk to his public defender. Another issue uh, with uh, due process related to um, these remote hearings is that, you know, a lot of defense lawyers um aren't able to connect with clients before the hearings begin and he blurted out that he was a um uh, a federal informant so they had to shut everything down <laughs> really quick and <laughs> and they asked uh and the tribunes not using the guy's name i mean this could really create major problems for him and his family and his, any of his associates so um lots of journalism ethics here legal ethics and um court technology all wrapped up into one one case <laughs>
0: Yeah, this was also the week in which I think it was this week. Uh, I think I saw it on Law. dot in which uh, a, a hacker uh, was able to get into a stream porn into a Florida court hearing uh, in, the, in the middle of a court hearing.
3: Uh, Are we sure that just isn't probably livened it up a little bit. What, I, I think that's just what Florida co- courts do. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not positive that's different, <laughs>
0: right? It, it could Everything just be, I've uh, seen, <laughs> Rule 27F. It's it's in there somewhere in the Code of Civil Procedure. Yeah. Any any comments on on that? On uh...
1: well, although I um, there was another um, story that I read that I was going to include that I didn't, but I may write about it next week. Uh, it was a New York. Um, a, p- a decision that was issued about an issue I'd never really considered with these live court, um, appearances or not the court appearances, but depositions and whatnot is coaching. And I think I sort of feel like someone may have alluded to that last week, but it addressed this concept of coaching a witness, um, when they're being, um, deposed on zoom and stuff when the, um, lawyer is off camera and ways to possibly address that. And so I thought that was interesting. There's all these, just all these different issues, um, occurring now and being raised. Because this is becoming more commonplace, and there's, it's not as simple as it sounds, just sort of this idea of let's just, you know, put put it all out on Zoom and see what happens. You know, there's all these issues that come up that no one really thought of until you put it in practice. Yeah. And that's definitely one of them someone yelling stuff out (laughs) to that degree without their attorney there to say, oh, oh, stop, stop, you know, no more, no more of that. But (laughs) it's
7: interesting. Um, uh, there's a the, yeah. the same the in texas um texas um is partnering with um harvard's uh, Lit, um innovation clinic to do to study these first appearances too um whether it makes a difference to have a lawyer um, during the first appearance, which would have covered this bail hearing, um, to talk to them before, before they appear before the judge and say something that could put their entire family in peril. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I think this is going to be a, a big deal, especially I, that's the, the criminal court proceedings are the ones that I've been the most concerned about going video remote only and mostly because not that I don't think it's possible to do it with everybody agreeing, but because the way it's been implemented is that the lawyers don't have a chance to um, communicate with their clients um, in private beforehand. Uh, even even when they do have a chance to talk, there's no confidentiality. The you know jailers are there, other but others are monitoring the conversation. So there are lots of lots of issues that need to get resolved with um, with a with with this before um, I would be comfortable with with remote for criminal proceedings. Well, yeah. well, but I yeah. mean, I
2: guess, and, and I mean, not having, uh, so unlike, unlike you, Molly, I am familiar with this website. And um, this, the, the, they, tend to, they tend to post videos of people fighting and, and, and beating each
3: other he, up. And, by and, the you know, way, he uh, means the hip hop site, not the porn site <laughs> that Bob was talking <laughs> well, about. Well, sorry,
2: hip hop. site. not there the Florida court mine. porn site. <laughs> there is a, uh, uh, they're, 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 they're kind of uh, famous, or I guess infamous, for posting videos of people getting beat up or getting, you know, fighting and whatnot. So it seems like kind of an odd thing for them to post, but whatever. Um, but I guess, I mean, I guess I'd have I'd have to know what the specifics of, 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 of this instance, of this instance were, but I mean, but, but, but it doesn't seem like it's all that difficult. It's all that, it's all that different from the typical situation where you have like a bunch of people in lock and lock up and the lawyer just goes to each one and talks to them, you know, before they get a reign. So, I, I mean, you know, on the one hand, yeah. Like, like, the fact that this person wasn't, you know, if this person didn't get a chance to even speak to a lawyer, to figure out what this person's rights were, or what this person was looking at, or what this person can, could and couldn't say in open court, uh, or I guess on uh, on on the a, on a Zoom hearing, that that's that's obviously problematic. But as far as like there being absolute privacy and not, you know, and having nobody around, I don't know if that's ever really the case, even in even in instances where people are, you know, in person and there's no technology involved.
0: Well, I've talked before about uh, my, my favorite judge these days is Scott Schlegel down in uh, just outside of New Orleans, who's been kind of uh, jury rigging all sorts of technological innovations using uh, very simple software. But I know he had just uh, emailed me, I think last week or this week, uh, talking about how he had set up a basically a virtual consultation room for, for lawyers and clients. Um, it, it's not really virtual, it's for the clients who, who it's for the defendants who who come in to the courthouse and the lawyer can't come in, he's created, you know, no big deal. He's basically taken a room in the courthouse and set it aside uh, with a Zoom, with a computer and a Zoom and a camera in there. And uh, he basically, the, the you know, a court officer brings him in there and they connect to the lawyer and the court officer leaves and they consult with their lawyer there. Uh, you know this isn't hard to do at all i I don't know why this is why it why the arraignment part of that I mean why the uh getting the uh, consultation with a lawyer would would be difficult but
1: uh well and and the problem with um I agree with you Molly about this uh your concerns about having this happen in criminal cases, but the problem is that you have a constitutional right to speedy trial, so these criminal cases have to go forward quickly, and the other thing that's happening is um it's a trend that I saw this week um Two different cases where there was a prosecutor who had filed an OSHA violation because he was being required to go to work under circumstances which he felt were dangerous. And then he got COVID and was in the hospital, was hospitalized for that, which is why it made news. And then some New York City um, public defenders are threatening to sue because they're concerned about their um, safety and being forced to go to all these court hearings where there's insufficient um, PPE and other, um, Safety standards in place. So the problem is that you, these people are entitled to this speedy trial, and the
7: lawyers are saying, hey, you can't,
1: put, you can't I'm not going to put my life at risk like this if we can avoid
7: it. So, yeah, yeah, that's, and that's what I was saying. So, Victor, so that, that, all of that is true, except that they're not allowing people to go to Rikers, for instance, to go talk to their clients. So they have to do it in these more public ways now. To make it happen. And so, so I think they might have actually filed suit on Tuesday of this week, um, unless that was just a threat to do. I thought they went ahead and filed, um, in New, in New York to, to slow down the opening of the courts because the, the, they still don't have access to the, the, a lot of the defense lawyers don't have access to their clients.
2: I don't know.
0: I still don't understand why they can't just do a direct video hookup from the jail to the, to lawyer and have them consult privately in that way, but I don't know. Um, so so right.
5: someone harking back to uh, yeah. pre- previous observations, someone said so Camilla Lopez in the chat says, heard a small claims appeal case today where an attorney thought he was on mute, and was screaming at the client for testifying incorrectly. Also heard an inmate calling in from San Quentin, which was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, mute hit, hit yeah. Mute hits again. All
0: right. We should move on just to uh, make sure we can get around. Uh, Victoria, you wanted to talk about uh, something from the other side of the pond. right?
6: Yes, where Caroline is located. Well, I think this was actually in Luxembourg, which I forget which country that's in. But over in wow. the um Europe, in the European Union, um they invalidated the privacy shield, which is a uh, mechanism that uh companies use when they want to transfer um EU citizens' personal data to the US and uh the uh, CJ, the CJEU, they said that is invalid because, um, in the United States, we don't have procedures that allow us, ch- um, that allow remedies for over surveillance or surveillance by, um, lo- U.S. law enforcement. And it was interesting, like data transfers won't end because of this. Um, a lot of lawyers that I spoke to said they're going to, um, a lot of companies are going to add standard, um, contractual clauses into their policies. Um, but that doesn't just mean you add something new to your contract. They said this—the um, decision from yesterday—really emphasizes that companies need to really analyze what type of data that they are collecting and transferring over to the U.S. And if it's very sensitive data that may is, that is more likely for uh, U.S. law enforcement um, to ask for access for during investigation, then companies need to put in extra. Um, safeguards for that data, and that may include just kind of like more notifications for clients when um, law enforcement reaches out to them to ask for access to their data or just encryption, so it's a little bit harder. for. So it is harder for U.S. law enforcement to access their data, but I think it'll be something interesting. There most likely will be in like another, part two to the Privacy Shield because the Privacy Shield, um, its predecessor was the Safe Harbor um, program, which the CJEU also invalidated a couple of years ago, and then Privacy um, Shield, I believe, was the predecessor to that. But it will be interesting to see kind of um, how companies continue, if they even want to continue transferring EU citizen personal data over to the United States, where they kind of decide it's not with it and maybe host it somewhere else in the world
5: yeah this 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 is I think probably I haven't got an awful lot to add to be honest to so this is probably my this was a huge story this week um and uh the privacy shield was a long time coming um and uh, it was only really recently put in place um, so it's been overturned you know quite quite you know it's a huge inconvenience for companies who are trying to manage their the, the transfer of data um so th- I think um they obviously now need to look at the position the only thing that i would say that i've heard is that um because of the flip, you know flux and this is this is a long-running matter that actually that they they haven't relied that there's been so much uncertainty that they haven't necessarily just relied on the privacy shield um that they um have they um sort of companies i was, I was reading something uh, from demo Voice. so companies may want to start identifying for which Jurisdictions they rely on standard contractual clauses for cross-border transfers. Whether they have local laws that could ultimately render reliance on SCCs invalid. There's also there's so many considerations that. Um, that, that yeah, so it was a really it's a big shock decision basically this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. People You didn't see it coming.
4: Huh.
0: Anybody else have thoughts or comments on that?
4: Uh, I mean, my only thought is just Max Schrems as an individual, the one who brought not only this case, but the safe harbor as well. His fight against Facebook has now had major implications. Um, So he's definitely something somebody probably to continue to watch as he brings up lawsuits because what he's doing, especially, uh, well, the case was first in the Irish High Court, but then went to uh, the CJEU. it seems to have major implications <laughs> across the globe for technology and where data is going to be stored. Um, so it's one of those, or one of those people, probably to watch. And for us as journalists, honestly, uh, when something is happening, he's definitely going to be on my radar moving forward.
3: Yeah, I, I thought one of the best um, takes on it was from TechDirt, who had uh, they. They said, look, a lot of people are going to view this as if it's a decision against the internet companies. And to some extent, that's true. But the real issue is U.S. surveillance of that data and that what this should set up if we lived in a sane world is now the incentives are entirely upon those companies to start pressuring the government to have some wholesale change so that they can get back on the EU's good side on this sort of thing. But who knows?
6: The lawyers I spoke to, I asked them, like, oh, do you think they'll still be that um, this will finally push U.S. Um, regulators to say, okay, we're going to have a national data privacy law, at least on how the law enforcement uses data and collects data? And they said, no, like, this will be something that goes towards it, but kind of like, especially now dealing with the pandemic and the political atmosphere right now and it being an election year, they don't see that being the main push, but they did, like, they... Some of them did note, like, um, what was it earlier this month, Boston? I believe they banned the use of facial recognition software by its law enforcement. That kind of adds on to the um, cities in the country that are doing that. So there is this discussion, but is it yet enough where the US is going to say, we're going to have a law actually saying, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. These are the procedures. This is the process of at least the government collecting this type of data. But from the lawyers I spoke to, they said not not right now. It won't happen right
0: now. yeah, there's also a state bill here in Massachusetts that would also very closely regulate police use of biometric uh, data. We'll see where that goes, but uh, um,
2: yeah I mean, I guess politically, you know pausing the argument that we should be more like Europe probably wouldn't uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't go very far.
6: Yeah, and they were definitely talking about one lawyer I spoke to. He said in Europe, because of kind of like their deal, um, their history with communism and everything that they're more worried about government surveillance. And for us, it's more about, um, protection, consumer protection. Um, But he even noted, like with the CCPA, everyone thought that would be kind of like the thing that motivated the United States, the federal government to say, "Okay, we need to actually put something on the books about this. But it wasn't. And this decision also probably won't be that push to say, like, okay, we need to actually put something on national law on books.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, All right. What else we got this week? Uh, Joe, I know there's law school law, law bar exam news and
3: yeah um so bar exam i am uh all bar exam all the time right now um <laughs> and to, for those who are just in the tech world and might not have been following this uh this whole test that we do for dumb reasons in this country uh all over the country <laughs> um we have a pandemic it's a disease you might have heard of it and it's one of those things that's really bad if you're in an enclosed space with a bunch of people you don't know really close, and that's exactly what bar exams are. And so a lot of states have decided not to have bar exams in July. Some of them even realize it's not going to happen in September. Other states have decided to go forward with it um, to their peril. Uh, but we did get one big uh, development over the week. Oh, well, yesterday is last night we heard that California is going to go to an online exam uh, to keep their people from having to come into a convention center to take it, which is very exciting in that that's a positive step. That said, there it does open another can of worms, which is there, I, there was a survey taken before this decision uh, where I believe at least a plurality, if not a straight majority of the potential applicants said they didn't know as though they could have stable internet for two straight days to take the exam on, uh, internet is spotty in this country for a lot of reasons that mostly deal with cable companies and deregulation. But putting all that aside, <laughs> we have bad internet in this country, and so a lot of folks didn't think they'd be able to do that. There's a lot of concern about locations where people will be not a, you know, won't get disturbed, and then there's proctoring problems. Uh, you can't really get people to proctor eight million of these exams at once, and so. The argument is to use uh, algorithms, uh, our old friend from the earlier, to determine if somebody's doing something that looks suspicious enough to investigate as possible cheating. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about implicit bias on that front for, you know, good reasons based on, you know, everything about algorithms. So these concerns are still out there, and now they have more time to settle them. But that's where we are. Uh, on the other hand, at least they aren't. They've realized they can't force people to do it in person, so we'll take that win and then move on to criticizing the uh, the, the stopgap solution.
0: Yeah. Did, did I also read that California is lowering the standards for passing the bar on a yes. permanent basis, not even just?
3: Yes. Why? And, and what, this has been a long time coming. Uh, sure. A couple of years ago, all the deans of all the law schools. Uh, had a study that they brought to the California Supreme Court that basically said every these cut scores need to be cut permanently down. They actually didn't cut it yesterday as far down as the deans recommended. But this is kind of the problem with California folks even some of my colleagues flippantly say Oh, well, you're just making California's bar easier for bad people to become lawyers. But that's not really what's happening. The cut score that these people maintain out there is absurd. Like, a lot of the people that couldn't get, that would fail the California exam would pass New York easily. And obviously, New York is a more important bar. And so this doesn't make any sense. And it's just there because they don't use this to protect the public. They, in California, are using it to as a guild mechanism to protect the existing population of lawyers, and it's a problem. And it's a and the the report suggested it was a problem for diversity initiatives in that a lot of the people who would pass under a more sane cut score uh, happened to be more minority candidates fell into that window than than not. And they also found that there's a huge access to justice problem in California uh, that is frankly the cumulative effect of not having a bunch of lawyers over the years of, because they get cut off by this cut score. So they are yeah. going to use this opportunity to make that reform, which is nice. Yeah.
0: As I'm sure we've discussed on this program before, as if the bar exam is any real evaluation of someone's competency to, to be a lawyer, it's such a ludicrous
3: yeah, I process it.
0: to begin with.
2: Yeah. I I forgot like 90%. I forgot like 90% of the stuff on the bar exam that the minute my pencil hit the, hit the tape. Exactly. But yeah, right. I've, And I've, you I've only learned
0: about, it to take the bar exam. It yeah, had nothing I've, to do I've with anything.
2: In decades, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's but I, but I do think that there is kind of a mentality for a lot of a lot of lawyers who who who, who took it and passed but they're like, "Well, if, if if I had to do it, why can't these young whippersnappers do that right. too?" Right.
0: Right. Um, yeah. Amazing yeah. so, ritual. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they had to walk to school barefoot in the snow too. Right. And they were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, Nikki, did you have anything this week? I didn't, I don't think I saw an email I, from you.
5: I did. Um,
1: and it was essentially a meme that's been passed around Facebook come to life. So it made me laugh. There's a meme that, you know, the people that, um, are, uh, think you should wear masks have, are posting, which is, you know, make, did you hear that the government wants to, you know, are, they're constantly monitoring you and if you wear the mask facial recognition won't work. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's some it's a little more artful than that, but that's the essence the essence of the meme. And then um it was just there was a couple different stories that came out that there were some uh law enforcement documents that were obtained. I can't remember the mechanism through which they were obtained or for what reason. Um where uh DHS was um Uh, had memos that were expressing concern that all the face masks were preventing them from using facial recognition software to to get criminals. You know, so essentially this keeping everybody safe from this pandemic is preventing them from prosecuting people, which I just thought was ridiculous. And that, you know, their primary thing was that there were possible violent people that were going to take advantage of the fact that you can wear face masks and then commit more crimes but the whole thing's stupid because, all right, fine, why don't you just go back to investigating and prosecuting people the way you used to before facial recognition? It's not like you still can't prosecute criminals. And second of all, they were going to wear masks anyway. They're not stupid. That's why people wear hoods and do all these other things when they commit crimes. So it just made me laugh that this is the, not laugh, it's where are our priorities? I mean, come on, folks. Like, there's a pandemic. You know, it's a, so for a little while, you can't get facial recognition to... Um, work for the white men. It doesn't work for anyone else. So. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> find another way to. Process we yeah. we talked That's about crazy. this
7: er- early on a few weeks ago because um, because it was a it's a big push in the in the demonstrator community too that you know because uh, law enforcement use crowd images and on social media. So if you wear your mask, you trip up a lot of those um, facial recognitions and identification. Uh, methods but you know that didn't stop the police from tracking down the woman who wore a shirt you could only buy on Etsy so
0: <laughs> right right yeah how, how long ago was how, it, it wasn't all that long ago when we were talking about the demonstrators in Hong Kong wearing wearing masks uh, and uh, now everybody's wearing them
5: are you going to mention Ross the decision on Monday I kind of I, I, would, I would have mentioned it but it's kind of nicking your story the Ross yeah well, I was
0: going to mention Ross. So the two things that jumped out to me one one was yeah Ross responding uh, to the uh, the Thomson Reuters uh, lawsuit, um, which was uh, which was interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, if any, if I'm sure a lot of people in this audience would would know about this. But but Thomson Reuters had sued Ross, uh, claiming basically that it had hired this third party company to steal a bunch of Westlaw content in order to help kind of build up its own legal research database. And uh, Ross uh, filed uh, its initial response this week was a, a motion to dismiss. Uh, interesting because they, they kind of called into question, uh, you know, Thompson Reuters' claims of copyright in its key number system and in its head notes. And, you know, I, th- I think, I mean, everybody understands that you can't, you can't copyright primary case law uh but I I think that there has been I think a lot of people have kind of implicitly accepted this idea that Thomson Reuters can copyright its its key numbering at least and, and its headnotes. Uh and, and this lawsuit, uh I mean this uh motion to dismiss, you know, basically says that all these headnotes are a bunch of copy and paste out of the decisions and there's no originality uh or creativity involved in them and that the head notes are, I mean, that the key numbering is really just a sequential numbering uh, uh, using classic uh, legal organization uh, uh, formula, and there's nothing original about that. Um, So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I also thought it was interesting. uh, I I hadn't noticed this when I did the story on Monday, but as I mentioned earlier, this was the week that the American Association of Law Libraries had their annual meeting uh, and, and uh, Ross had earlier pushed for an extension of time to file its initial response until Monday. Uh, and so you might wonder whether they, uh, uh, for for the PR folks in the audience here, whether they had, you know, intentionally thought about making sure that they could file their response on the, on the day that kicked off the double uh, A double L convention. Get, get the attention of that audience. but
5: It's interesting. TR's reaction is interesting, isn't it? When they've come back and said that actually that nowhere has Ross denied that they've, that their key thing about their argument is that Ross accessed, that, so that they weren't allowed, because they're a competitor, they weren't allowed to access the data full stop. Um, and they and TalkTalk's Tom, response has been um, nowhere do they deny that they've accessed kind of effectively you know illegally or against all TL's terms the data in the first place. Um, so they've sort of they've just they've immediately come back swinging, haven't they? Which has been quite interesting as we observed before about the cases. So quite often it's very hard to get information. Uh, other than what you can pick up, you know, in public filings, it's very difficult to get people to comment. But there's, in this case, yeah. they're very much, you know, there's a sort of like war by media. As as we both last time, Ross came out swinging after the last filing, and, and then the then TR have done exactly the same this time. Come come very, you know, firmly again saying that there's that that nowhere um, does Ross deny that um, it surreptitiously stole content from West. Ham, which is quite
0: yeah, and, and they did though. I mean they did they denied that they stole the headnotes. it is funny how they kind of phrased it in their in their in their pleadings, but they denied that they stole the headnotes or the key numbering, which are if you read West's original complaint, that's really the only thing that they're claiming was copyrighted anyway. So to the extent there's a legal claim that Thomson Reuters has is only with respect to the headnotes and the uh um and in, in the key numbers, although Thompson Reuters is also claiming, you know, inter, tortious interference with contractual yeah. relations by virtue of having gotten this company legalese to, uh, yeah. you know, the, the the allegation is they got this company legalese to, to download all this stuff and pass it on to uh, Ross. Uh, and, you know, it, it, as I think we've talked about this before on the show, but the. Thompson Reuters had settled its lawsuit, had already sued legalese and had settled that lawsuit within days of turning around and suing Ross. So you have to think Thompson's got something up its sleeve there uh, in terms of uh, the discovery it conducted in that prior litigation. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out.
5: That point, I think it's interesting that point about if, if, if to take your point about you know that a lot of this data is public, why then did they need to? When well, they could get all of if all they, if all they needed was the public data, then why then did they need to access the data through um through legal aids? It's, 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 it's an interesting point, it's an interesting point, yeah.
0: Well, they I mean, they had had their own subscription and, and which yeah. got booted off of there, uh, and and you know, and I, I think the argument again that Thomson Reuters is some people that I've heard from some people at Thomson Reuters, uh. And others is that the reason they wanted the key numbering system is not to replicate it, but to use it to help train their AI. And I, I have no reason to know that. That's just an allegation. But certainly there is uh, some uh, benefit to be a, obtained in in training in having and having access to that to train the AI.
1: Well, yeah, garbage in, garbage out. They always all the programmers say <laughs> that you need the data for the AI to learn. And if it yeah. doesn't, and also just to provide you um actionable information and without, and that's what Lexus and Thompson Rogers have is tons of data. That's their advantage in the marketplace. I think when it comes to AI. Yeah. Um Really quickly, I had a question yeah. before we, you mentioned AAL. I saw Kevin posted on Twitter that um tech show is virtual, but I didn't see that anywhere else. Has anyone heard that? Maybe a tech show is going to be virtual. Um.
2: So what happened? I mean, so the weird thing is that like, the tweet oh, itself still right. says it's, it's going to be in Chicago, but then when you click on the um, thing to be a presenter or to, or to propose like a presentation or whatnot, it says tech show will be virtual. So, uh-huh. I mean, you know, so so I don't I don't I mean we're we're like, like we were still trying to figure out what was going on. We didn't get a straight answer from uh, from from anybody, and so. <laughs> Tom Miles loves- says def- Tech yeah. Show is definitely virtual. Definitely yeah. virtual. Anybody I mean, knows okay. is Tom Miles. I think Tom
1: he would knows. know. Twice, <laughs> twice
0: chair of Tech Show. So
1: I was just curious because I was wondering what was going to happen with that because that's a little further out than order So all
0: right. Yeah. That, that caught my again, eye. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no one, no one told me. I do the, the startup uh, LA thing at the on the opening night, so I don't know whether Tom, are we doing that. Uh, we'll find <laughs> out. Um. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention that I thought was a really interesting story this week was the the news from Deloitte that had launched this legal business services practice in the U.S. Um, you know, uh, to like to, to folks over in the U.K. This is probably not not such big news, but you know, I, I think in the United States, a lot of legal professionals tend to overlook the fact that that the Big Four are major providers of legal services around the world. Uh, and you know, what's, what's kept them out of it here is, is our, both our legal regulatory structure and some of the financial regulatory structure as well. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, I think this is big news. Uh, they're getting into providing a, a managed services business. Um, I interviewed yesterday, I interviewed the guy who's going to be heading it up, uh, for my law next podcast. I think that's going to be up on Monday. Uh, and, and you know, I, I kind of uh, tried to prod him on, you know, what happens if there is regulatory change? What happens if California or Utah or whatever kind of loosen the rules a little bit? Does this is this a stepping stone toward toward Delight doing more direct law practice? And he, of course, said, "Oh no, no, we're a regulated industry. We don't think about that at all. It's, we have no interest in, in thinking about that." But uh, I don't know. I you know, I think this is significant, and uh, I mean, the managed services area. Is just so huge. I mean, there was there was just also news this week that, that Ed Sohn, who used to be with Pangea Three and then went to EY Law and now jumped this week to uh, to uh, Factor uh, to work with them. Uh, you know, that, that's just a, a a major area to uh, to be watching and following. There'll be a lot of interesting stuff happening there.
4: Yeah. What I thought was super interesting about it too is who Deloitte hired for that because they were basically cherry picking people from pre existing ALSPs. Yeah. Um, like I pulled it up here. The guy who you may have talked to, I believe, uh, came from Integrion.
0: Yeah. Mark Ross. Mark Ross. Yeah.
4: They got Louis Christian from Elevate yeah uh, recently, obviously across the pond, they got Emily photos from Luminance. So they're getting all of these people and kind of conglomerating them into one place. Um, yeah. because they're Deloitte, they can, they can pay that. Yeah. Um, so that's might be the strategy for them moving forward. Is just kind of picking off top talent as they can.
0: Yeah. And Mark said he was very, I mean, he started with them in January, but he said he was very deliberately hired, you know, for the purpose of, of starting this, 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 uh, business service here in the U S. So um, Victor, I, I don't think we've gotten you. Did you have anything else, uh, anything you want to talk about this week?
2: No, I think, um, yeah, I mean, um, I think, yeah, I didn't I didn't get a chance to uh, propose anything. So, yeah, sorry about that. It's not too late.
7: Well, I guess I, well, have I, I, have a, I have a, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Oh, oh, well, no. I, I was just going to ask because of the Supreme Court decision um, with Georgia, uh, cases not being copyrightable i was listening to a webinar at, um, and really started to think about well if those aren't copyrightable and they need a formal case and um and the states that don't already do that on their own are going to have to do you can everybody have access do, do we have a case with uh, ross and and thompson reuters if all, if all states have to be public and any startup can have access to all the case law, I'm just throwing that out there.
3: I think that case would mean that any any work product created by a third party, either West or Lexus, uh, for a state that is published in their official reporter is not copyrightable, but anything they're doing on their own. I think would still, their argument would
7: still So one of the points that Ed Walters made was that, um, I think California has a copyright notice on their, on their, um, cases and that's, he doesn't think that's enforceable. So, so states think they have it and the, and organizations think they can't use it, but, but, um, this case seems to say, nope, you, if it's the formal, official state record, you can use it?
0: Well, the Supreme Court case dealt with, it was a unique situation because it dealt with regulations, uh, the the annotated uh, code rather, not the regulations, the annotated code. And so they were claiming that because there were these annotations done to the code that the annotations made it copyrightable. Uh, But the court was saying that because this is the official code and you can't copyright the official code and because you, you the state of Georgia, supervised the creation of the annotations, then you can't copyright them. If, if Lexus yes. was doing the annotations as yes. a standalone thing right. somewhere, they could certainly copyright that.
3: And, and but, it was set up that yeah. way. Yeah. That was how the... like It was so dumb. So it was set up this way because <laughs> right. George, Georgia wanted Lexus to do it for them, but Georgia refused to pay. So Lexus said, fine, we'll... we'll I, I work mean, work. I'm... I'm yeah. Putting this shorter. I'm sure like these <laughs> conversations were more yeah. that, less colloquial. But Lexus was like, fine, but if we do that, then we'll hold the, co- then you say we have a copyright in it and then we can be the only ones who publish it and then we can get the money that way rather than you paying us on the front end. And Georgia said, fine. And so that's how it ended up that there was this claim that they had copyright over what was there. But the Supreme Court's position was no, you don't get to copyright your official state documents, even if you right. farm well, them out. Yeah.
7: So, so yeah. I thought I thought the Chief Justice was very clear. If it's a if it's a public record, it, that includes yeah. court cases.
3: Yeah. What <laughs> we're I agree. talking about
7: with Ross with Ross and and Thompson Reuters when you start when you start to to view that as this this is very clear and sweeping beyond Georgia, that if this is your formal public record then yep. and your case law and you're serving the public interest, then the people own the copyright, not yep. the state. Yeah, but, but that's, the or, or of the Reuter, that's the difference with the Reuters
0: that's the difference of the Thompson Reuters case. They're not saying that they own the copyright in the cases. Thompson yeah. Reuters is not They're saying they that. Thompson. They're saying what they own is the enhancements that they've the editorial enhancements that they've added. In the nature of the head notes which they have lawyers sitting there writing the people on their staff writing the editors and the the key number system, which is a, something that they have created just, so, yeah.
7: no I get, I get the argument i'm just I'm just taking it a step further with once this is all open you know and algorithms are developed through the state, yeah. then do you need either of these companies? Or, you know, what, what other competitor is going to come up with access to all this information and serve it in a better, in an easier, uh, more affordable way? Yeah. Well, I think
1: head notes make a big difference when yeah. I'm doing legal research.
0: But, you know, I mean, Ed Walters for years has said exactly that. He said, he said We're, we, don't, we don't think that the value that we offer is in providing access to the cases. It, it's the... The simplicity that we add to it or the user interface that we add to it or, you know, the the other enhancements that we add to it, that's what Fast case. that's what makes FastCase valuable. Anybody can put cases up online right now. And, and uh, although there's still a question about where a lot of these services actually get their cases, they're all very secretive because, I mean, most of them have cases that go quite a bit back in time. And, the, I mean, the rumor is that almost all of them all come originally from the same uh, database that was stolen from Thomson Reuters, stolen from Westlaw back in the day, uh, and uh, that has been added onto and built on over the years. There's apparently some uh, some some uh, secretive place you can go online and uh, and download. Yeah, (laughs) the dark web, and like basically, you know, like like it's like child porn or old court cases. You can you can you can download these things somewhere in the dark web, but uh,
1: really boring. That's a really boring corner of the dark web with all the cases.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, it's it's like the but um, you know, fast case sells. I mean, a lot of the services buy their case updates from Fastcase. That's a big part of the way that Fastcase makes its money, too. So.
2: Yeah, and actually, now yeah, now I have to go go and read the complaint or the or the the motion papers in that um, Ross Thompson Warriors, matter. Because whenever whenever I talk to anybody from either Westlaw or from Lexis, they made it seem like, oh, these headnotes are so you know beautifully crafted by you know these experts who who spend so much time and so much energy on it, and that's why they have they have to be protected and whatnot. If they're just you know copying and pasting stuff out of <laughs> you know out of out of out of out of various parts of the case, then you know I guess that would that would kind of cut against that, at least that argument that these are that these are works of art that need to be protected.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's still the there's still the question of whether you know Ross keeps saying this is just a uh, just an attempt by thompson by a Thompson Reuters to squelch uh, squelch the you know this budding competitor and uh, it's a good and uh, as as somebody, I think and Joe, I think you saw that tweet. But when, when earlier this week, when I had on my headline something about, or the I used the image of David versus Goliath, and somebody said I'm not yeah. quite sure that that's a fair analogy because uh, Ross has a lot of big, uh, big, big money and big name backers uh, behind them as well. But uh, I, I think the analogy still holds true because uh, I'd much rather have Thomson Reuters' banking account than uh, Ross's. I think.
3: It's still yeah. it's still apt because there are some biblical scholars that question whether or not David was actually small and undermanned in that particular, you know, so maybe it, is. <laughs> there we go. Maybe it does work. Yeah. <laughs> we did it all. <laughs> all right.
0: Anything else? For, ne- for,
5: ne- for next week, we've run out of time, anyway. but for next week, it'd be interesting to look at, um, so obviously the financial results are coming in. It'd be interesting to see, like, that's obviously not legal tech, but interesting to see what happens there and also um, in the UK the furlough scheme is coming up so there'll be we're expecting a whole raft of redundancies whether that's sort of particularly relevant to our legal tech world but I know of quite a few people in legal tech that are furloughed so it would be interesting to see when the end of that how in the UK when the end of that program comes up what, what the position is So that's probably not a conversation for another at all but there's been some interesting stories about that this week in the mainstream legal media
0: sounds good keep an eye out mm. All right. Well, thanks to everybody. I, for one, am very glad it's Friday this week. And I hope you all have a great weekend and see you all back here next week.